Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome, welcome to the Building Science Podcast. 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 Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello, hello, and welcome back, everybody. I'm Christoph Irwin with Positive Energy. Thank you for being here. I'm here, as mostly always, with my good friend Miguel Walker. Please say hello. Hello. Any profound thoughts today, Miguel? You know, it's been a busy week, uh, but I've still had a fair amount of fun chasing squirrels away from my tomatoes with the water hose, so I'm doing okay. (laughs) Hope everybody else is, too. Yeah, that's good. So um, typically when you record a podcast, you're not supposed to give time context, but I will say that we are in the still in the grip of the COVID pandemic here in North America. And so if you hear that come into our podcast topic, uh, you'll know. I mean, this is a challenging time for all of us, all of us that are paying attention. Okay, well, to get started, today I have the great good fortune to introduce you to Pamela Cabrera with Transolar. And we are going to be talking on uh, variations on the theme of moisture, dehumidification, mold risks, uh, some very important work. And I think that just fundamentally, if, if COVID is doing something in our world, it's making people more aware of indoor environments and uh, the impact, the potential impact on their health. Pamela is a, an associate at Transolar, and uh, she's a climate engineer. And Pamela, would you like to um, perhaps just give us a little bit of, um, give our audience a little flavor of who you are and how you came to be working at Transolar? Sure. Thanks, Christoph, for the intro. Um, I am Pamela Cabrera. I, I am a Peruvian architect by training, but then I became extremely stressed about um, the limitations of being an architect and in Peru. I was trained in in the U.S. actually, but I went back to Peru to practice there, and so the the opportunity to expand in the field of third of what happens in the building's thermodynamic and the physics of the building, and have a deeper impact on the design. So I went back to school and did a master's on energy and environment in the at the GSD, and saw the opportunity to to really uh, look at architecture in a different lens. That was beyond um, space, form, structure, and program into really the heat flux of of what happens through the building, the impact of occupation, and really climate, right? Responding to climate, and how can you do that in in, in the most responsive way that is specific to the site? Wow. There's a lot right there. Um, I don't want to veer us off from our main topic, but I do want to clarify or just follow up on two points. One is you said GSD, and believe it or not, there are people who might not know what that is. Could you talk about what GSD is? The GSD is a graduate school of design at Harvard University. It's a design school because it teaches programs in architecture, landscape, planning, but it also has more science-driven programs like the design engineering and then the master in design studies in energy and environment and technology. I did the, the MDES in energy and environment uh, there, and after that, I, I am not wor- now working as a consultant in Transolar. Okay, fantastic. And then the other thing to dig into is, 
it was pretty profound, right? You said you got frustrated at the limitations of architecture and you went back and studied science. Um, can you offer any more comments like that? I mean, were you, you were working on projects and that's where the frustration, frustration occurred or was it just like a general frustration? I went to school for architecture at the Cooper Union and I'm deeply grateful for the exposure to arts and design and critical thinking that I got in my undergraduate study. Um, yet, we didn't touch on the science of buildings. And when you start practicing as, a, as an architect, after having some experience in the US in firms in New York, I went back to Peru and had my own small firm. And leading architecture projects there and working with engineers that were very um, you know, close-minded about what structures could be, about what interior climates of buildings could be, was uh, was challenging to to define to defy their conceptions of of architecture. And I felt like I needed to have a better grasp of the science of the building. Kind of coincidental. I've had two conversations this week with architects, kind of feeling that same sort of I wish I knew more about this. You know, I guess the good news is is that there's firms like Transolar, there's firms like Positive Energy that can make like a good partnership with architecture teams, and uh, doesn't have to be all in one person. But man, it's so great sending you a high five today. We're going to be talking about two topics uh, from among many that we could. We're going to try to zero in on two, and in fact, getting through these two in something like an hour might be a bit of a challenge. So the first is a paper that you just presented in Rome at a conference there uh, on the future mold risks in uh, existing residential wall assemblies uh, when you factor in climate change. And the second is membrane dehumidification, which is one of the three ways to dehumidify air. That, and I am just so thrilled to talk about both of these. So first, as you heard, I was slowing down when I said a conference in Rome. Could you tell us which conference? Yes, um, the conference is the IBIPSA, um, the IBIPSA conference. They do an international conference annually, and yes, last year was in Rome. And that's the building performance simulations, right? The international building uh, performance simulation, I believe. Okay, so the paper you presented on there was partnership with Holly Samuelson, also from Harvard. Um, well, actually, I shouldn't say also from, you're not currently from Harvard. And she's done a tremendous, she has a tremendous body of work. I would love to get her on the program at some point. But you talked about uh, the vulnerability, the potential vulnerability, and it turned out to be the actual vulnerability of wood-framed residential uh, walls. So let's, let's jump into that. As I was just thinking logically about this study, so you studied the, the future of buildings uh, with regard to their risk for mold and so for durability and health issues, right? That's, a, that's the dimensions that are being included beyond energy now, health and durability. So it seems to me there's three steps to this. One, you need to create a model of future climate conditions. And two, you need to model both heat and moisture flow through a building assembly under those changed conditions. And three, you need to evaluate the potential for mold. Well, I think it would be nice to, to talk about how this research began, because I was, I was doing a summer internship at the USA uh, Army Corps of Engineers at the Risk and Resilience Department, and we were looking at how buildings are going to subs like withhold 
risk in the future with future climate? And what type of resilient measures can we implement in the, in the building studies to, to progress the building codes of, of the US? So we looked at this and we, and we took one angle and the, and the angle that I was interested in was related to moisture and humidity. Um, and that's part of my obsession with uh, humidity and, and, and humid environments and climates. And also uh, the interest that, you know, building codes in the US have been designed for a typical weather that is from the last century and things are gonna move quite fast and change. And our walls are not, you know, you can't build a wall um, in Miami as if it was in the climate in Maine or in New York. So what, what's going to happen to most of the existing building stock um, in the future? So let's, let's just talk about that. You mentioned that climates are changing right in there and weather is changing for the buildings that we're in. And it, it's... it's sort of surprising to me still in, that in 2020 there are people that aren't sure about that. And I find it quite reassuring in some way that, you know, ASHRAE, a very data-driven organization, they simply, you know, even in their just their, their most basic level, their handbook of fundamentals, their climate data in there, their weather data, excuse me, I should say. Climate Zone 1 didn't, didn't used to be in much of the U.S. at all, just like the tip of Florida, and now it's entered also the tip of Texas. And Climate Zone 2, 2A, hot, humid, where I am, it's basically steadily marching northward, northward, county by county, you know, each time the handbook is published. So it's this kind of very fact-based way to say, look, whatever your philosophical worldview and the narratives by which you navigate your life, the, the local weather is in fact changing. Uh, it's getting, typically getting more and more humid. So you were using, how did you, how did you create a future weather model? What's involved in that? So there's many, uh, there's many methodologies of morphing future weather data. And I am not the expert that has defined the, you know, the, the statistics and incorporating the IPCC scenarios into current weather files to morph. I, I studied them and I chose um, a specific morphing methodology to implement the third assessment report climate model from 2001 um, for scenario A2 into our into the current weather files. So this is this is one methodology. There's a lot of different tools outside and, and really the research is growing a lot because the problem with uh, morphing future weather data is that it's not it's really hard to anticipate uh, local changes rather than um, broad brushstrokes of climate based on latitude and, and longitude. So for future conditions in the paper, we morphed the typical weather files that are found in the Department of Energy site for the US, the TMY3 files, with the CC World Weather Generator tool, which was gen created by the United Kingdom um, Sustainable Energy Research Group and, has and was originally only developed for the UK, but then it was later expanded to include other weather file formats 
um, including weather formats from the U.S. by Belcher, Hacker, and Powell in 2005. There, there are other methods of morphing weather files, but um, according to research that I found, there's several studies that, that prove that this uh, morphing uh, methodology is accurate in relation to the IPCC scenario. So the, the, main, the main concept here is that we're following the IPCC third assessment report uh, for a scenario A2, which is not the worst scenario in that report, but it's definitely something that looks business as usual. Um, okay, so yeah, could, could you give a, just a quick comment on how A2 would fit into other scenarios? So in the third assessment report, there is there are several scenarios that not only respond to CO2 emissions directly or only about that, it's related to economic development, social structures, and, and population growth. And the A scenarios, the A1 and A2 scenarios, are, are closely related to just an economic growth, kind of prioritizing that. Um, A1 is a more global approach where there is, there's a collective... Um, Kind of coalition between the globe and A2 is more regional, so it's locally, where each country is kind of just focused in their economic growth alone. And the B scenarios are are the the scenarios that are more actively related to the environmental response. Um, I'm not uh, an expert in IPCC uh, reports, but this is what we we use for the paper. No, that was that's perfect. That's the level at which we need to understand it, and I and I do understand that. With today's world, it's so tempting to want to come across as an expert in everything. But I really appreciate your being very straight about this is a huge body of knowledge and there is expertise beyond mine. But trust me, you know enough to educate me and to educate our listeners on this. So basically, you took the TMY3 data and you morphed them using this CC World Weather Gen. And uh, how far out did you morph them? In 2080. Whoa, so 60 years. Right. right. But you imagine that today we're building in 2020 um, structures that are going to last 70 years. So if we expect buildings to last that long, we have to look into the future and really understand what is going to be the impact in 2080, even though that feels really far away from today. Yeah, not, not, not to do too many tangents, but how do we pick 70 years? How, why didn't you say 100 years or 150 years? Is that... 70 years a uh, known quantity somehow? The reference was the typical life building expectancy. And I think we, we referenced the life expectancy of 75 years and thought that 2080 was going to be more appropriate to the lifespan of buildings. It, yeah, I, I just bring it up. I mean, I have family, for instance, in Basel, Switzerland, and, you know, they're 400-year-old continuously occupied um, townhomes, right, in their, that city. Well, that's the goal. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be really great. Okay, so you have the future climate, and then you're going to apply that as input to a modeling tool. And we have talked, I believe, listeners, if it, we, well, we'll pretend we haven't, but we have talked about WUFI, this Verma und Feuchtiger Instructionaire, which is heat and moisture flow, so hydrothermal modeling tool. And that's what you used. There, there's many different flavors of Woofy. Um, Woofy comes out of the Fraunhofer Institute. Which version of Woofy did you use? We use Woofy Pro 6. Okay. Just for listeners, just do a quick, if you could, just how does Woofy Pro differ from 
for instance, Woofy 1D or Woofy 2D? I think that there are different levels of detail that you can go into. Uh, we have some hydrothermal studies already happening at the GSD, and we felt the most confident to work with Woofy Pro 6 for a, for a two-dimensional um, simulation of moisture transport. So I think it's it allowed us, and maybe... Um, it allowed us to to locate specific sensor points across this, the wall and specific materials and look at the vapor diffusion and the moisture content at all the faces of the wall. So it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit more detailed than the Woofy versions that you mentioned, but it's still not a three-dimensional thermal coupled simulation, which is Woofy Plus. I actually, I want to just go back very briefly. So you did this modeling, this weather morphing, is it possible that you could give us a general sense of what it showed for, for the climate that you were looking at? Uh, and, and I guess this is where we need to say you did this analysis for New York City. Sure. Um, I also want to mention that that paper that you're referencing, the conference in Rome, that was a conference paper that began the studies. And after that, we, we have this paper that right now is on review that is a little more in-depth and looks at different cities across the climate zone A4, not only New York. That's so this, cool. This problem was going to be replicable in other cities and other wall types uh, that are code compliant today. So we're pretty excited about that paper. Oh, yeah, me too. And, and, but all still in climate zone 4, is that right? Yeah, 4A. For it. Is there any intention to expand this to other climates? The, the research is based in Harvard now. Um, Holly Selmusen, she was my advisor while I was in, at university there. And she's, she plans to continue research, probably doing other climate zones and expanding um, the hydrothermal studies of future climates for sure. Okay, that's fantastic. The wall assembly that was described in the original paper, is, is that the same that was used in the, the newer one? We modified it a little bit to make sure that it was code compliant in, in the cities and, and we could find the references of how long and when and where that wall was um, utilized. I think we changed the, the vapor retarder material slightly is still on the warm side of the wall for the code compliant wall from the 1990s and but in the code compliant walls of today that we also tested we don't have that interior membrane because it's no longer a requirement um, and therefore actually that's the main problem of the old wall because that's where the the moisture was con condensating right but we still found um we still found mold in the in the current walls, definitely less than in the old walls. Wow, fascinating. Okay, so I think, because we have a lot to go through, and I, I want to go through it methodically, but I also want to get us to the membrane. So I'm going to highlight the wall for listeners. It's fiber cement sheathing on the outboard side. There's a WRB, uh, one perm WRB behind that, and then OSB cavity insulation, at least in the initial study with cellulose, and then there is an interior craft face, craft paper, uh, vapor retarder, and that's what you pulled out of the second study, and then gypsum on the interior. And obviously, like as I read through the first one, I'm like, yikes, you know, I don't want that vapor retarder on the interior, and I wasn't super surprised to find that there were issues with that in future weather scenarios, but you're saying even when you remove that, you still experience some concern. 
Yes, if I can just talk about, you know, conceptually what's happening with the wall, is that in the past, in the typical weather that was experienced in these climates in cities, you had a, a climate that was dominated by the heating load. And therefore, there was long periods of time that the outdoors was cold and the interior was warm. And you wanted to avoid condensation from the interior vapor uh, to migrate to the interior of the wall and condensate inside because it's reaching the cool um, temperatures of the outside. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But now or in the future, but it's already happening, um, this, this is going to shift completely, like 180 degrees, because the, the, so the summers are gonna get longer and the warmer periods outside, it's also it's gonna influence that heat flux in the wall. Therefore, instead of trying to prevent moisture from coming from the interior to the, to the stud cavity, you should be looking at moisture coming from the outdoors into the stud cavity because you're running your AC and it's actually the cold part of the wall is actually to the interior rather to the exterior. Well said. And then I guess to, to kind of help us interpret the output of the analysis, there's the VTT Institute in Finland, which is uh, arguably the world's leader in understanding mold growth. And uh, they have their mold growth index and it's Ojanen and his research team. Do you have the, at the tip of your tip of your fingers, tip of your brain to, to go through the mold growth index? Mold was a, was a perfect like we found mold uh, mold growth, and it was a perfect metric for resilience in the future because it not only talks about the durability of the structure itself, but also. Um, the health of the in, in the indoor environmental quality in the in the building. Yes, and there's a lot of research and a lot of computational advancement of how to simulate mold growth with temperature, relative humidity, and conditions of the material. So we took that opportunity to include that in our research and not only uh, analyze the the moisture inside the walls, but really how much mold would happen due to that moisture. Um, trapped in, inside the cavity. So we're, we used, we chose to use the VTT Technical Research um, Center of Finland tool um, that was later actually coupled with uh, WUFI. So you can just extract specific data of, of moisture content in the materials and then run it with the VTT modeling tool um, to determine the mold growth in a material. And it's not, it, it, it affects as a mold growth, but also decay. So it's something that shows the dynamics of climate and how summers really affect uh, mold growth. And it, there's a decay of mold growth um, in, in the winters. Yeah, and that, that scale, it goes from zero to six, with zero being no growth, six is like scary runaway mold growth. And if I remember correctly, three, is it three, Pamela, that's the first you can see, start to see it visually with, with an eyeball? Or is it microscopic yes. still then? Yeah, zero, the mold growth index uh, from the guys is uh, zero is a no, mold, no growth. Three is initial visual findings on mold surface. But it doesn't mean that just a little bit of visual findings only means that there's a 10% coverage 
it actually is usually over 50% coverage, but you only get to see 10% uh, on the naked eye. Ah. And at six, at an index of six, there's 100% very heavy and tight mold growth detected visually. And just a quick comment on that, and, and it's interesting, it, it does con connect to Harvard. Uh, there, there's like a, within the industry right now, the kind of the state-of-the-art thinking on mold is that mold is kind of like a, a proxy for the indoor microbial ecology of a building. And so it's really not like, oh, Pamela, you're, you're unhealthy because there's mold. It's, it's Pamela, you're unhealthy because of a, a range of microbial experiences in the building, potentially chemical as well. And, and they're both chemical and microbial. And that just mold is a very uh, visual representative of that, whereas everything else is fully microscopic and stays mainly invisible. But the, the parallel that's interesting is that the parallel is, is carbon dioxide, right? So I know that the Harvard is also doing their COG, their, their cognition study, and CO2 elevated to 800 or 1,000 ppm is now correlated with some sort of cognitive impact. But there's still controversy whether it is the CO2 itself or whether it's uh, other emissions from the, the people in the space that lead to the CO2 to get to those levels. It's still an interesting time, but nonetheless, we can say if CO2 is high, watch out. If you're seeing mold, watch out. Let's, let's move from that so then we can talk about the results. I'm actually looking at the graph that you drew for the initial study from the Rome conference. If it's okay with you, can we put that in our show notes for people to look at? Of course. Yeah, so you can put that. So basically I'm seeing you know, these seasonal, kind of like a sawtooth pattern and for several of the scenarios, it gets above uh, three, level three, so it becomes visual. Could you talk about that? Maybe in the context of the other expanded study? Yeah, sure. I also want to mention that during our studies, we saw that there was two um, important thresholds, the index of three and the index of one. And once you pass that threshold and you have a steady um, increase of mold growth, it's really hard to decay all the way down to uh, no mold. And therefore, we, we saw those as key moments uh, in the simulation to pay attention to. Yeah, that's, very, that's, that's really fascinating, yeah. So as someone who's familiar with reviewing Woofy, Woofy findings, if I see them trending horizontal, I usually think, oh, that's fine, it's, it's staying stable but not when horizontal means it's evidencing mold continuously. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So it needs to go back to zero in this scenario, and uh, not all of them, none, several of them don't. And I think one of the main reasons why you should be aware, like worry of them going beyond one or two, actually, um, is because this is only testing the stresses of humidity and temperature of the outdoors it's not really looking at the shocks. So we don't, we don't account in our model any sort of leaks. Uh, we don't account in our model, you know, storm surges or sea level rises. So this is only looking at what happens in just future weather climate uh, or weather data without any sort of shocks. Right. But there's definitely going to be shocks. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, that's huge. Yeah, so if everything's done just as modeled, um, it's still a problem but chances are good there's going to be shocks. And there's another one that you mentioned in the paper, which is that a lot of these high rainfall events, high wind that are going to cause these leaks, they're likely associated 
with power failures as well. I think we, any final comments, any final thoughts on this? I think we could move over and talk about membrane dehue and I can lead you in that, but do you have final thoughts, things that we, that we haven't said? Is there a kind of like a, a summary to your results that you would like to share? Um, yeah, sure, if I can indulge. So one of the interesting things, going back to the future weather data morphing is that it's not a linear uh, result. So you see that in the morphed results, there's a high increase in both a dew, dew point temperature and dry bulb temperature that happens in the summer. It's not like you're gonna have a constant increase in temperature throughout the year. There's gonna be peaks and there's gonna be lows um, in terms of the, the difference in temperature between the future and the present. And that is also very important because it's during the summer where you have a high, um, an increase in temperature, but also an increase in absolute humidity outside that you get these uh, mold growth results. The results, I don't know that we've actually stated them. I mean, it, you stated that, we have stated that there are many scenarios for which mold uh, develops. It, get, it gets past level one, even gets past level three. I don't know that we said straight up that it gets into the level four and fives. Is that, that's correct, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely for the round paper, um, they were pretty high. When we adjusted our, our models and we are actually using now fiberglass insulation instead of cellulose, our, our mold growth, the highest reaches a 4.8, which is still pretty high. And the lowest, which happens uh, with, a, with a pine vinyl side, sorry, pine siding instead of vinyl siding, reaches a three or 2.9 index, sustained index over time. Those are with the, with the 1990s wall section. Another very cool fact uh, with a new paper is, is that when we tested the, the current walls, we tested um, walls at the different leakage and with default leakage or very tight walls that, you know, don't really go as far as passive house, but we wanted to understand what happens when you build really tight walls. And the tight walls show more mold than leakage walls because they don't allow the moisture inside the wall to dry. So that's also something that needs further research, but it's actually very interesting because, you know, we have a lot of trends about building tight envelopes and what is, the, what is gonna be the problem if we don't look at all the repercussions of that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Air, tight air sealing is um, becoming very much like a mantra these days. You know, the tighter the better, and it needs to be interpreted in context, yeah, to allow drying. So it's, it's interesting, as, just to expand on that very briefly, if you endeavor to make your building passive house compliant or just very tight air control layer, you need to be that much more on your game with regard to uh, wetting processes, uh, and there's, myriad wetting processes. And can we link to this paper? Because I realize, you know, I described it as fiber cement, but you you permuted siding types, vinyl, pine, fiber cement, you permuted air tightness. So you said this new paper is, is out for review? Yes, so it's not published yet, I'm sorry. But I will send you the link as soon as it's published. Don't worry, folks. We'll link to it as soon as it's published. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much for that description, Pamela. Um, and so, you know, what we've talked about for the first however long this has been is that it's all about moisture. It's all about 
um, control of moisture flow through buildings, that brings up the ability, and actually, as we just said, the ability to dry a building once it does get wet. And uh, listeners, longtime listeners here, and, and I'm sure you already know, Pamela, that if you maintain, uh, you know, the air in a building is thousands of pounds or tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds of mass. And uh, if you maintain that mass in a dry state, it can be absolutely a moisture reservoir for the materials, like meaning they can dry into the inside dry air mass. But that means keeping the, the air mass dry and then um, preventing it from getting wet. And so I think I'm trying to make a good segue into your membrane-based dehumidification. <laughs> um, I guess everyone can hear me doing that. How about you take a crack at it? Could you introduce us to membrane dehumidification? Maybe put it in context. Sure. I guess I could also relate it to my interest in humidity. Um, as we have to be careful about buildings in humid climates that can have a big impact in the in the construction materials and the decay of those materials and mold growth like we just talked about. Um, the main problem with, with humid climates that are hot, hot humid climates, is is air conditioning. <laughs> Humidity and water in the air is absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Like water is the best way of moving heat around a building. And um, the main, the problem with passive strategies right now is the humidification. So I think my, my focus shift with, okay, what are the dangers or what are the conditions of humid climates and what are the other opportunities that we can take uh, advancing technologies that could improve those. So uh, that's where me the membrane dehumidification comes in. Uh, with the main, and not to uh, talk a lot, but... That's what you're here for. <laughs> with the main purpose of really opening the buildings up and not creating these double state scenarios of, you know, indoor climate that is freezing versus outdoor climate that is hot and humid, but something that can mitigate that and allow a building to breathe, to ventilate naturally, and to have more connection to the outdoors. So. Yeah, that is so awesome. That is so, so awesome. So I just want to touch on a couple quick things. One is you said that the main problem in hot, humid climates is air conditioning, and uh, I, I understand where you're coming from, and I think that's funny, though, just that sentence. People would say, what are you, nuts? That's not a problem, air conditioning is great. <laughs> and then I love that you said um, that water is uh, fascinating, and it's a, a fantastic way to move heat around in a building, and I, th I think that, just wanna unpack that for listeners, just to make sure people know, like if you, let's say, uh, let's say there's a glass of water on the table here with me, and I spill it, well, the water on the table is eventually going to evaporate into the air by absorbing heat from the space that it's in. And therefore, when there is moisture vapor, evaporated water, liquid water in the air, it is absolutely a form of heat, right? It's, uh, and it's called latent heat, uh, hidden, latere or latire to hide. Um, I just love that you just work that in as though it was common knowledge, Pamela. So um, I actually, no one can see me because it's a podcast, but I'm wearing Henry Gifford's, uh, the shirt from Henry Gifford's latest book called Buildings Don't Lie, and it's got a psychrometric chart on it. Just to keep this very brief for, I, actually, how about you do this, Pamela? Um, could you introduce us to the three main ways that dehumidification can occur, the three dehumidification processes? Sure. So... The most common dehumidification process that is used in 
vapor compression HVAC says to compress different gases um, and, and materials to expand and contract and remove the heat out of the buildings. And it works similar, it works with phase change um, and similar to what Christoph just described with water, but it's a very energy intensive way of dehumidification because you need to arrive to dew point um, of the air temperature and continue cooling that dew point down to arrive to a water content in the air that's desired. That's right. And then, and then it um, heats back up, but it's at a lower RH than it used to be. Or a lower, uh, excuse me, not just RH, a lower dew point, lower absolute humidity. Yeah, and a lot of the times they need to actually heat that air back up because it cools so much in order to remove a lot of water that is too cold for the indoors. So then you have to reapply heat in the in the air um, system if you want to have it at a more comfortable temperature in the, in the space. And the second way of dehumidification uh, that Christoph was also referring to is desiccant dehumidification, and that is based on hygroscopic materials and such as uh, silicon beads where that could absorb water from the air basically there's also a phase change happening there where the air the vapor the water as vapor in air condenses and is absorbed into the material and that releases heat into the environment so as much as they're they're great they they could dehumidify but they don't really cool the air they they increase a little bit they, the temperature in the air. That's right. And just to expand on that briefly, like, um, um, well, one system I know is the Munters system, you know, these giant enthalpy wheels that are uh, desiccant wheels, and the air moves in, and it's absorbed in one side of the, well, it's, it's absorbed when the wheel is, is at one point in its rotation, and then the wheel spins up, and a hot air mass is moved across it, and it dries out the desiccant, moves that moisture out of the building. So these, these giant desiccant wheels, they're, they're very useful for getting um, very low dew points, but so far that I know of, and, and I have tried to shop these systems on a single phase residential scale, they are, they're not really market ready. I mean, there, there are some <laughs> systems, but there are, they're both currently more expensive and more uh, high energy using for this, this drying, reheating process than uh, I'll put in quotes, air quotes, good old vapor compression based dehu. <laughs> and then um, and then the third one, and just by the way, since you guys can't see my shirt or the psych chart, basically vapor compression has like, an, like a to the left on the psych chart, down and over and then back up to get you to a drier spot. Desiccants kind of go to the right, diagonally down and then horizontally over, if I'm remembering right. Actually, I'm not seeing it. But the like the holy grail is if you could just go from a humid spot on the psych chart or in a building in the air mass and go straight down and end up at the same temperature and drier um, and by the way same temperature transition uh, engineers love to have um, language that makes them sound really smart uh, and so we will call that isothermal so it doesn't change temperature to same temperature and so that's what you've been looking at Pamela, this, this direct drying, the air moves through and it, it, the moisture is, um, how does the moisture leave in a membrane DU? Yeah, so it's, as you said, it's, it seems like magic. You know, you finally find a system that 
when you, for example, we're in the psychometric chart and we're at 28 or 30 degrees Celsius, and we just with the membrane dehumidification, you just move directly down. So there's no energy expense. We don't release energy to the environment. We don't absorb it. We're just basically keeping the the water vapor as water vapor, but we're just sieving it out with a membrane. And this is a very ubiquitous uh, way of selecting substances in nature. A lot of stuff works with membrane selectivity from our lungs to how leaves release, uh, like absorb CO2 from the environment. And because it's, it's so efficient, right? The only thing that you need is a different concentration across the membrane so that this, the, from a higher concentration state, there's going to be a direction to the lower concentration state. Basically, a change in moisture creates a driving function and the driving function moves it across the membrane. Really, that's part of it. But really, I'm just talking that generally, without even humidity, membranes are really good way of selecting substances or at, in, in nature so wow really so it's like a sieve oh like uh, the gold miners <laughs> they were using sieves to pull out gold you're saying that nature uses membranes not just for dehumidification but to pull out other things like maybe like nutrients or something right so our lungs alveoli exchanges oxi- oxygen and co2 with our bloodstream through a membrane and then there's no energy expense there it's just a membrane and there's different concentration states at each side of the membrane and there's going to be the membrane has a property of, of sieving specific substances from one concentration state to the other concentration state. It's kind of like heat flux, right? The heat is always going to move from the hot state to the cold state, kind of like how entropy works. And the same thing happens with different concentration states. Like it could be a chemical potential or it could be electrical potential or it could be pressure across a membrane or just having, you know, um, a lot of concentration in one side, basically in simple terms, is having a lot of concentration in one side and low concentration in the other side of the membrane. And then the membrane has the properties of allowing certain substances to go through. I hope that was clear. <laughs> Kudos. Yes, that was very well said. And now, so that's the basic concept. You applied that to uh, a membrane to remove water from air. Is that right? Yeah, so the same thing can happen in, in for dehumidification. It, it is used a lot also across industries. Like we remove lactose and dairy from with membranes, and that's how the separation happens. And uh, reverse osmosis and removing salt from salt waters also with membranes. So I was just thinking, how can we utilize membranes in buildings beyond just creating barriers that don't allow moisture to come in? moisture to go out. How can we use membranes to select exactly uh, water out of the air and maybe we could do passive, like some sort of other isothermal dehumidification? Yeah, this is like (coughs) mind-blowing and awesome. Like I'm super excited to ask these next few questions. So you're working on this membrane. I want to talk about that, but first help us understand like where do you want to put it? Are you saying you get rid of the walls and you just have membranes? Are you saying this is like a membrane that goes over the window so that when you open the window, the humidity doesn't come in, but the air can move through? Can you help me understand that aspect of it? Yes. So membrane studies have been kind of centered on HVAC equipment. They're not in the market yet, but there's been a lot of research on what materials work and what is the 
the eff effectiveness of different membranes and pressure differences. I was looking specifically at how can we take this emergent technology and use it as a building material. So as you said, included in the facade, how can we make membrane screens that could be placed in openings, just like window screens, and allow natural ventilation in buildings while the humidifying air as the air passes through the membrane. Oh, so exciting. Can we go to the end quick? Can we? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, and somehow this is turning a reality, which is kind of mind blowing. Um, yeah. It was a sketch. I, you know, I'm from a very human environment and I, we've always had questions and problems and thoughts about what to do with humidity. And it would be amazing to be able to to incorpor incorporate that with architecture so that we can apply other passive strategies to buildings. Okay, so let's let's calm back down and go. So you did this study? I mean, you did an actual study. This isn't like a modeling study. I mean, not to berate modeled studies, but you had a laboratory apparatus and you were testing different membrane materials. That's my understanding. Yes, I, I made different membranes and I I tested different membranes and different geometries in a lab at Harvard for my thesis uh, with help from the Wies Institute and, and my advisors that ranged from um, Harvard to MIT. And they, they were extremely helpful and also kind of thought outside the box with me of what this could become. So the, the thesis involved experimentation and data collection of how these membranes performed the next step is to see really how can this be incorporated in a building and do multiple tests to make sure that uh, we find the right materials and the right configuration there. How many different membranes did you test? I uh, fabricated two types of membranes. The thesis at Harvard is a semester long, but I started this also as an independent study a little bit before that to just do the background research. So I was able to do two different materials and... Um, I also saw a big improvement from having a flat plate membrane into a geometry, a V-folded plate, because you create turbulence and there's more contact time between the air circulating and the membrane. And uh, that was exciting because at the end of the thesis, the proposal was a mirror-fold screen uh, for dehumidification. It's all very... It, it was all very just like a proposal. Now we have to make it a reality with the grant that we just received. So That's so great. Yeah, that is so great. Yeah. Careful what you asked for. So you said Miura. Could you spell that and describe that briefly? The Miura, Miura is Miura, M-I-U-R-A. Uh, it's a form of origami that is very structurally sound and it's easy to fabricate. And I just saw as the first step of, of creating different geometries that could create turbulence and path flows to increase the, the performance of the membrane screen. But other geometries could play into part. It was just one um, very simple origami folding technique that, could, that has stability, structural stability. Got it. So basically you, you have the hypothesis that creating more turbulence and more pathways would be better than a flat plate and that proved true but we're not sure you know it would be very fortunate if you uh, lucked into the first one you tried was optimal <laughs> right exactly i imagine that we're going to be testing many more configurations and we're probably gonna arrive to something completely different but 
that was the starting point. Okay, and then what about the, so that's a substrate for the actual uh, membrane, correct? The membranes themselves are in that shape. Oh, okay. They, they have a stainless steel backing. They're, they're all in very preliminary stages of design. So we did have some sort of um, structure that held them in place. So I don't know what they're going to turn into. Right, I had two types and they both were tested in, in different geometries. The first type was a dry polymer membrane, which uh, had a top of polyvinyl alcohol and lithium chloride. So that made it very uh, hydrophilic and a base of titanium dioxide in a stainless steel mesh. And the second membrane was a supported liquid membrane with a top of PEC 400 with a substrate of cellulose acetate sheet. It's really strange to say top PEG 400 because the PEG 400 is is liquid so it gets absorbed by the cellulose acetate and they, be, they together become one layer in the membrane and then you have a PTFE hydrophobic layer underneath and the stainless steel mesh uh, for support. So that, that's the second that's membrane. Cool. That's cool, okay. So you have, but the first assembly, so the first assembly is a dry membrane and it's polyvinyl acetate with lithium chloride. And then you said something about, did I hear titanium dioxide on, and a stainless steel mesh? Yes, this, these two membranes were based off uh, previous research. Uh, the polyvinyl alcohol membrane that you just um, mentioned, that was based on research from the National University in Singapore with Professor Ernest Chua. And I actually went to Singapore and he uh, showed me his membranes and his team showed me how to fabricate them. And the titanium dioxide just helps, I guess, close a little bit the porosity of the stainless steel mesh of five microns. So I don't think it's, necess it's completely necessary. I think it's just part of the manufacturing of that specific membrane. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, it's so cool you got to go to Singapore. It's pretty humid there, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yes. It was great to be in Singapore doing dehumidification studies because I could understand my comfort level and also the, the require or where people spend their time, which actually a lot of people spend their time outside. So Yeah. Okay. And, and describe the liquid membrane. That, that's a little more confusing to me. Yeah, it's called supported liquid membrane because we're supporting this liquid, this PEG 400, um, which is um, hydrophilic in a cellulose acetate sheet. I think it works a little bit different that, than the polyvinyl alcohol because it's thinner and it's more like a, it does have a hydrophobic layer underneath it, whereas the, the polymer, polymer membrane doesn't have this hydrophobic layer. So one of the key things that I saw in the research was that it's really beneficial to have this hydrophilic top and hydrophobic bottom so that you can adsorb and attract um, moisture at the top of the membrane, but then quickly release it and desorb it to, to the feed of the, of the vacuum side.
Wow. So you, you've really turned into a serious geek <laughs> in a good way. Uh, so just the last comment, and then I, we got to get to the uh, did it work, what next. But the PEG 400, P-E-G 400, it sounds so much like a product, like a building product, you know, like uh, buy a roll of the PEG 400 and apply it to the building. It's not, right? It's like a chemical. It's a liquid. I actually think they use it in shampoo. Um, it's not, you know, it, and polyvinyl alcohol, too, is, is very benign. So one of the hopes of the project, too, is arrive to something that is made out of materials that are accessible, that are easy to use, and that actually this membrane doesn't need to be ex- expensive and could be something that is replicable. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, good. Okay, so cut to the chase. Did it work? Did the membranes dehumidify? Yeah, they did. They dehumidified. Um, it was a success. Yeah, so it, it was great. I mean, we were able to dehumidify about 0.15 grams per meter square of membrane per second of air passing through. You know, the supported liquid membrane performed better than the polymer membrane, and I think it was due to the fact of having this, you know, hydrophilic over hydrophobic uh, composition. So the, I have a question about the air that's moving through this membrane. Is, it, is the driving function, like the, do you need to push the air through with a fan or pull it through with a fan? Or can you just rely on the, the gradient between the humid air on one side and the dry air on the other? You don't need to move the air actively. Um, the only reason why you need to move the air is to provide air inside. Let's put it that way. The, the energy, the only energy in the system is to create a lower pressure state at one side of the membrane so that you have ambient pressure in one side and then you have a really low pressure in the other side, lower, ideally, lower than the, the partial pressure of water vapor. Right, so and let me interrupt just briefly here. When you're saying lower pressure, do you mean lower vapor pressure or lower air pressure? Lower air pressure. Yeah, it, the thing is that it's dry. So at the other side of the membrane, there's no vapor. There's no vapor, so there's only just uh, it's on a vacuum. So you would even say that it's just um, a vacuum of air. Wait. So where do you get that? I mean, I could see that working in outer space, but yeah, I mean, it's not ideal. So you just have a pump that creates a vacuum, just creates a, a state that has a really low pressure, but itself is not. Uh, it's not humid um, until, you know, it starts working. I don't know if that helps clarify that. Well, it, I think you're describing your, your laboratory apparatus. You had a vacuum pump, and that helped move the air from one side of the membrane to the other. But it does cloud my understanding of how this is going to apply to an aperture in a building. Right. So that the other side of the mem- the membrane itself could be all contained into maybe plates that have these like Miura fold plates that have tubes. So they're staggered and they're stacked. And there's gonna be openings that are just open to the outdoors and indoors and that's where the air is gonna flow through. And then there's gonna be closed loops of the membrane that are gonna be connected back to a window frame, for example, where um, then that's gonna be connected to a vacuum pump. So you're gonna be creating lower pressure states inside that membrane and therefore the moisture as it passes through with the air the moisture is just going to seep through the membrane and the dry air is just going to flow into the space got it got it so it's kind of like like the vacuum is 
is functioning um, like in a vapor compression dehumidifier. It's kind of like your condensate line. A little bit, except that you don't condensate the water, right? Right. The vapor it's where the moisture as... goes, correct, or no? Right. The more then the vapor is then collected, and then of, there's going to be a point that you want to, you're going to want to condensate it to reduce the volume of that, and maybe use the water in the building. I don't know, but it's true. There is an energy component in the system. It's not. It's not completely passive. We you're, we're expecting huge improvements in uh, energy efficiency from typical HVACs. All right, so Pamela, super exciting. When are we gonna see this uh, on our store shelves? <laughs> <laughs> you're so optimistic. This is gonna take years to make. We have our grant is for a couple of years, and then we're gonna have more reviews and extension to implement some of the, hopefully implement some of the prototypes in, in spaces that we can actually calculate things on site. But it's exciting. I think the team is like an amazing team. I'm completely humbled and excited to have people from Harvard that I worked with, with before, from Joanna Eisenberg and Joanna and Jonathan Greenham, who is my advisor to Les Norford and MIT. And of course, uh, Forrest Meggers in Princeton that was driving the whole initiative of pushing my thesis forward. That's awesome. Yeah, I follow him, follow his work. So question then, uh, the grant, I think it's fantastic that um, some entity is funding this. Let's talk about that. Who, who, who's the grant from? The grant is from the Department of Energy from the U.S. They, they selected ventures to reimagine what building construction could be and affordability for energy-saving measures. And we applied as a research opportunity and, research and technology development project. And yeah, it's, it's going to be great. We have really good partners and really good advisors, too. Oh, that's fantastic. So, hooray, DOE Building Technology Office. Thank you for doing this. What do you think I didn't ask you that I should have? A cool fact is just that 70 to 80% of the work of an HVAC in humid climates is only for dehumidification. So, if we tackle dehumidification and decouple it from, you know, sensible cooling, then we can, you know, we can really reduce a lot of the energy in the buildings. So that would be great. Yeah, it's so important. Yeah, I think that this is the era of uh, humanity getting smart about how to, how to manipulate materials to do exactly what you're doing, to, to remove uh, moisture, to remove other pollutants, right? I mean, that, that's what's coming to mind for me is that there's a you know, whole chemical soup inside buildings. Um, and if we start to get smart about these selective membranes, um, it's kind of like we're, we're using biomimicry in a very intelligent and very exciting manner. And it can have a huge impact in the U.S. and elsewhere, too. I mean, climate change is going to be, is, is going to impact the hardest um, places that are already hot and, and humid. And heat stress is a big problem. And that was also part of my thesis, just looking at how is the resilience of buildings going to, um, going to be in the future and how, you know, countries that are emerging countries and economies that are developing fast and they're going to face heat stress levels in the future. Do we expect everyone to, 
just have air conditionings to mitigate those or you know can we do something different yeah i remember it was it was a while ago maybe the early 2000s there was a big heat wave in europe and many many people died i mean i remember paris more than a thousand people died of heat waves i mean this is very serious very very serious i just saw graham wright present well i say just but um at the passive house conference in washington dc about heat stress and yeah i think that it's a very important topic. Maybe when we do part two of this podcast with you, um, <laughs> we can talk about that some more. Any final thoughts, Pamela? No, I, I think this was lovely. Thank you so much for having me here. And it was great going through two projects that are connected, but you know they're very different in methods and applications, uh, but they're all focus on humid climates and resilience. So Such an important topic. So thank you so much, Pamela, and thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time.